Alright guys, we're going to do the in-depth application of labels presentation block of instruction that we didn't get to at the uh, Winmore Deals negotiation seminar put on by the Black Swan Group in New York City on October 27, 2017. So let's dive into this because we had a full day today, so this is extra bonus instruction. Hopefully you get a lot of use out of this, find it to be, uh, find it to be very helpful. Have a little bit of fun with this as well. So we're going to have a little bit of fun. Uh, let, let me put this on. I'll start out with this. It's because yesterday, I'm, uh, you, as you guys probably know, I'm a small-town boy from Iowa. And yesterday, University of Iowa won a very big game against Ohio State University, big football game. So I'm always happy when the Hawkeyes win. So give a little, give a little love out to the Iowa Hawkeyes for a few minutes. All right, so labels. This is, uh, this is a derivation. This is a deal-making stairway. And it's a derivation of the behavioral change stairway that was uh, written with the FBI Crisis Negotiation Unit. Principal author was Gary Nessner, the former head of the Crisis Negotiation Unit. He had input from Steve Romano and the other people that he was working with at the time. But this was about human, human nature back then, and it still is about human nature now. So the deal-making stairway, the stairway to deal-making, to influence, if you will. All right, so at the bottom is the negotiation nine, the negotiation nine skills. And this is the steps up to the stairway. Now, this starts out with empathy, deployed empathy, actually demonstrating understanding. It's not having understanding is enough. It's demonstrating that understanding. Our skills will be enhanced by things such as a likable demeanor. You're seven times more likely to make a deal with somebody you like. So uh, being likable enhances your ability to make deals and have empathy. Cold read. What's the read of the situation? How do we assess it walking in? Not how do we wish it would be, but how do we recognize that it is? And with the read of the situation and a likable demeanor, how are we going to prepare? How are we going to prepare in order to get ourselves to have influence? Now, the next step after empathy is we're going to is developing rapport. And many people equate liking with rapport, and liking can be an element of rapport. But real solid rapport, two-way street of communication is much stronger than that. What we're trying to do is after we have demonstrated empathy is get it reciprocated. That's the next step. And how do we, get, how do we know when empathy is going to be reciprocated? When the other side says, that's right. Those are the solid gold words. Any, you know, your right is horrible. Your right is dismissive, putting you off. It's them refusing to accept ownership in what was just said. It's a concession. It's, you know, there's so many things that are wrong with your right. The critical words, make no mistake, are that's right. Empathy has been reciprocated. Stephen Covey's advice to us, seek first to understand, then be understood. How do we know when they feel that we've understood them? They say that's right and bang, empathy comes back to us. That's why we're using empathy in the first place to get it reciprocated. You get empathy reciprocated, you now have trust-based influence. That's the strongest influence you can have. And the empathy is reciprocated when what you've just said to them is a complete and indisputable truth. It's the truth. And since it's the truth, then they can embrace it and that's how empathy comes back. It's a subtle epiphany on their part there's so many different things, responses triggered in the other person's brain, brain chemicals actually being released. We're going to get into that flow and the other things, 
that are um, part of this whole brain chemistry thing that gives us trust-based influence. And when we hit through this, when we get empathy reciprocated, bang, we've got trust-based influence, and now we're in a position to make great deals. So this is a Black Swans group's deal-making stairway, and it's just an you know, it's just a model. It's just an indication of the steps, and this is a dynamic process. Please never forget. You're probably going to have to hit that's rights throughout the process for a variety of reasons, which we're going to get into and how the brain works as we get further into this. All right, so let's give a little bit of love here now to uh, let's give some love out to the New York Giants because yesterday was Saturday, college football. Today's pro football. Spent a lot of time in New York. Uh, my son and Brandon and I are very big New York Giants fans. So let's give a little love to New York Giants here now. Sorry, all you Patriots fans. All right, so I mentioned a minute ago the cold read. And we're going to stack up the cold read versus how. And how is typically one of our calibrated questions. And uh, it's a good calibrated question, but it's always dependent on context. And here's a context that I want you to think about on how that maybe how doesn't work so well. Now, down here you see on our first bullet point, how's everything going under casino? In the negotiation courses we taught in the different business schools, uh, Georgetown University, University of Southern California, we had this one particular uh, simulation we ran people through on a regular basis called Casino. And it was written by Sheila Heen and Doug Stone, two friends of mine, they're, they're brilliant. They've uh, written uh, jointly a fantastic book, Difficult Conversations, and also Thanks for the Feedback. Great stuff, highly recommended reads. And the great thing about this casino negotiation is it's an internal negotiation between a boss and a subordinate, a boss and an employee, over this computer program called Casino. And who's right and who's wrong, and the employee was recently promoted, and there's all sorts of problems. Very well-written exercise, because whenever we, want, we run it, People get way into the roles, and they get kind of emotional about both sides. Now, uh, from the boss side, the boss believes walking into this negotiation is a real good possibility of firing the employee for cause. Boss thinks they've got all the groundwork, and there's a really good chance that uh, the boss may decide to fire the employee because the employee's just been messing up. Now, the, this is so well written that the employee side... The employee thinks, I got, I got a hostile work environment lawsuit. I could possibly quit. I could sue him. I got to make up my mind. What's this have to do with how's everything going? What's this have to do with a how question? We've noticed in time after time that the boss, when the boss is upset with the employee, every single time the boss has started out with, how's everything going? The boss knew how things were going. And the boss was upset and the boss was angry at the employee. How's everything going in this context was a disguise for, I think you're screwing up. And before I lower the boom on you, I want to find out if you know how bad you're doing. In this context, how's everything going was a precursor for bad news, which happens in context after context. People call you with bad news the first thing out of their mouth is typically, how's it going? Because they never say when they have good news, how's it going? 
they always say, I got great news. So a very significant percentage of the time, how's it going? We get conditioned that it's a cover for, look, not only are things not going bad and things are not going well, they're not going well for you and that's what I think. Give me another context where how it was bad. Working a kidnapping in the Philippines, I'm teaching my negotiators, call the family members up every day and a half, every two days. If you got nothing, just tell them. Call them on the phone and say, look, there's nothing new. Now, this is really smart emotional intelligence move because when people are dependent upon you for news and they don't hear from you, they're uncertain. And uncertainty is one of the highest stressors of all. The uncertainty is not knowing when things are going to be over, not, not, not knowing how things are going. It's really extremely stressful. It's tremendously reassuring to call somebody on the phone and say, hey, just want you to know there's nothing new. It's actually emotionally intelligent. It's extremely smart. And when we started doing that with the people that we were the family members we were working for in kidnappings, they settled down so much because they went from wondering if anything was going on to knowing that all was quiet. There might not be any good news, but there's also no bad news. And that's tremendously reassuring. So I've got a negotiator in the Cincinnati division, and he's supposed to call his sister, the, uh, the, the female hostage, every day and a half and say, hey, look, Mary just wants you to know there's nothing new. And I find out he's not doing it. I call him on the phone, and I say, hey, man, you know, have you called Mary? Why, why are you calling Mary? He goes, no. He goes, I'm tired of calling Mary on the phone, asking her how she's doing, and having to rip my head off. And I remember thinking to myself, how do you think she's doing? She's doing horrible. Her sister is kidnapped in the Philippines. They're being held by terrorists who are murderers and rapists and have murdered and raped within this terrorist, within this kidnapping. So for you to call and ask her how she's doing, how do you think she's doing? Now that's very well-intentioned, just like the above situation. Well-intentioned, but the context is bad because a cold read is not there. You're not reading the situation. When you say how you're doing, when you're supposed to know how, you're, how things are going, the person on the other side thinks one of two things. One of them is, are you really that stupid that you don't know? Or, where do I start? So, in bad context for what would otherwise be a good question. Last one, how can I help with the consultant? I'm on the phone with a consultant I'm thinking about hiring for marketing a couple of weeks ago. We've had extensive conversations before we have this conference call, which I put a fair amount of work into setting up. I think I've got everybody ready to rock and roll on this thing, get started. We get on the phone with the consultant who happens to be distracted at the time he's driving, which is also a very bad idea. Don't take an important phone call when you're driving. It's, you're distracted. And he says, all right, what's going on? How can I help? And I think, I think to myself at the time, where do I start? We've had a bunch of conversations already. I don't know where to begin here. How can I help? Are you telling me, it, you know, the label would be, it sounds like you're clueless as to how you could help. So what are we driving out here in, in, in your cold reads when you have reason to know how things are or how you could help? Start off in your cold read with a summary of the situation. 
give an enlightened, insightful read of the situation. But this is one of the few instances when what is otherwise a very good calibrated question has a great pre-start of very many of our calibrated questions. But the context, the context here, the situational read, how could be a bad way to start off? You, you, you don't want people to wonder if you're oblivious by asking, you know, how are you today? Or you don't want to be inadvertently sending signals that bad news is coming by how are you? Because, you know, a diffused signal that bad news is coming is not the way to set up bad news. All right, let's move forward. What's the source of one of the most addictive substances known to man? There's a bit of a hint here. <laughs> That's a picture of a brain. You know, until I started reading about flow, uh, I've read more about the, the mental state of flow in a book that I like a lot, if you're interested. It's called The Rise of Superman by Stephen Kotler. Let me see. I know I've got a backer on a shelf someplace. Um, all right, forgive me, I should have had that handy, but Stephen Kotler, The, right, the Rise of Superman. The Mental State of Flow, what traditional athletes would have previously referred to as being in the zone. And that's where we really want to strive for uh, in our negotiations, and we use our emotional intelligence tools to affect the flow state of the other person. Flow is so... Addictive because you're incapable of incredibly high performance when you're in a state of flow. What happens in flow is it borderlines on euphoria, which is highly positive. It also, fear drops out. When fear drops out, our decision-making increases, our pattern recognition increases. X Games athletes are capable of physical feats five, six, seven, ten times more impressive than what athletes could do 30 years ago, 20 years ago. Are today's athletes 10 times more physically capable? Did we go from vertical jumps of three feet to vertical jumps of 30 feet? No. It's pattern recognition, reaction, decision-making, instantaneous decision-making, seeing things before they happen because you see all the patterns. That's the state of flow, and that's a mental state that our emotional intelligence tools and the reads that we're going to try to get into an effect in our negotiations and in our own personal performance. Now, this now back to this uh, more uh, detailed, somewhat picture of the brain here, the human brain. What what have we magnified? What are we showing here? The portions of what's referred to as the limbic system, which is the emo- where the emotions flow through the brain. And then the infamous amygdala, the little, the little thing in red. Uh, and, and it's shown here, uh, basically a left side and a right side. Let's, let's refer to this as maybe sort of an exploded view. The amygdala where the, the caveman brain, the, uh, the amygdala hijack, all the things that we've heard about in terms of emotions. Now, the crazy thing about this, and, and I'm going to give you the layman's small town Iowa boy perspective on this. What they found in the studies of the brains with the fMRIs, functional magnetic resonance imaging machines, and the EEGs that that trace how the electricity goes through the brain, that half the amygdala enhances, is devoted to, transfers both negative and positive emotions. The left side, negative and positive. 
the right side exclusively devoted to negative emotions. What does this mean? Three quarters of the amygdala is dedicated to negative emotions. Three times the real estate, if you will, three times the amount of space. Now, let me take the non-scientist and non-neurosurgeon's point of view, although in reality, the non-neurosurgeon's point of view, the neuroscientist's point of view is backed up by the way people react. If there's three times the amount of real estate devoted to negative emotions in, in the amygdala, in this portion, the emotional center of the brain, three times the space, then maybe negative emotions have three times the impact. And in fact, this has played out to be pretty accurate in study after study. Prospect theory, the uh, Nobel Prize winning uh, uh, theory by Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky, Danny Kahneman's book, Professor Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Flow, very much about prospect theory. They won the Nobel Prize for this. Daniel Kahneman won it because, uh, unfortunately, Amos Tversky was deceased by the time the uh, prize was awarded, otherwise he would have been awarded the prize as well. Prospect theory says lost things twice as much as an equivalent gain. That's effectively a negative, uh, things of equal impact, uh, e- equal actual uh, value, both negative and positive. The negative hurts twice as much as the positive feels good. Losing $5 hurts twice as much as gaining $5. I said before three times the impact, right? Well, Daniel Kahneman gave an interesting interview where they said, well, we think loss actually has more like five times the impact. We just lowered the number to two because we wanted fewer arguments. So that's not three times the impact. That's even more. It's five times the impact. Another example is a student in one of our classes at uh, Georgetown once told us that when he was in a sales program, they said they had to demonstrate nine times value to make a sale had to demonstrate the positives to be nine times more powerful than the negatives to make a sale. That's the flip side here of a nine-to-one ratio, just to get dead even between positives and negatives. This is an emotionally intelligent approach. We're giving you tools. The tools specifically are labels, which is the topic of this overall conversation, an in-depth application of labels, and why we talk about how we want you to use them. So here's what we've got. We've got positive emotions. We get negative emotions. Two targets of equal size, but not of equal value. Imagine that the positive emotions that we can label and the negative emotions that we can label, neither one is more difficult to hit than the other. Each one of these targets is the same distance away, same size, same degree of difficulty to hit. One target, you get one point score. The other target, you get three points, at least three points score. If you're lazy, which target are you shooting at? You know, you're going to at least take the negative targets into account. You're going you're gonna to try to get as far as, as, as you can, as quickly as you can, hitting those negatives. Another way to look at this is the brain has two speakers whispering in its ear. One about the positive emotions, one the sounds of the negative emotions. The negatives are three times the volume of the positives. Now, our labels are our tool, they're our dials to go in and either turn one up or turn one down. These are the direct tools that we have 
to reach in and have an impact on the sounds that are going through people's brains, the volume of the emotions. Now, again, remember with this 3 to 1 ratio, when people are on autopilot, the negativity on its own is going to have a tendency to have three times the volume level of the positivity. That's their autopilot. So we need to bear this in mind, and this is why when I referred to earlier on the behavioral change stairway, that we probably needed to go back several times. This is not a static process. This is a continuing dynamic process that we need to be aware of the negatives creeping back into people's heads based on the architecture that's there. This is the caveman brain that at one point in time was necessary to keep people alive when there really were saber-toothed tigers chasing us down the jungle paths. We needed to be three times more pessimistic, three times more negative in order to survive. We don't need that anymore. We don't, are not actually being chased around by saber-toothed tigers. We still have the same limbic system wiring in our brain. Now, here's the crazy thing. What's crazy about this? What's crazy about it is every positive has a flip side negative. Every negative has a flip side positive. Imagine the power and the influence when you begin to put these things together this gives you. You begin to see any given communication as having multiple aspects, direct negatives, implied negatives, direct positives, implied positives. You begin to pick and choose which one of those you want to dial up, which one of those you want to dial down. With a little bit of practice, and we're going to give you a little bit of practice in this particular block of instruction, you're going to get very good at it. You're going to find your influence is incredible. It's one of the reasons why Adam Grant wrote an article called The Dark Side of Emotional Intelligence. This specific application of emotional intelligence is ridiculously powerful. It's so powerful that Adam Grant said in the wrong hands, you know, use your powers for good and not evil because it's extremely influential in the wrong hands. All right. An in-depth application of labels. What are our labels? Our labels are sentences that start out with it seems like, it sounds like, it looks like. Do not be fooled by the simplicity of this structure. It's also you seem, you sound, you look. Maybe you feel. We've got one negotiator uh, who works with a a multinational huge company, an internet-based company. He likes it feels because that happens to be how he's wired. And he uses his labels also to dial up his instincts. I'm wired to hear things. I happen to like it sounds. You might be wired to see things. You might like it looks. Whichever one it is, seems, looks, sounds, you seem, it looks. The important uh, point here is we're avoiding the phraseology of what I'm hearing is we're principally avoiding the the use of the word I as we go through this. It's very intentional in this context, this context. Again, contextual intelligence, situational awareness, also known as situational awareness, very important. In this context, avoiding the use of the word I because I is self-centering. We don't want to self-center. The neutral it or the more personal you, which is engaging. We use labels to identify driving forces and dynamics. Again, we don't use labels to 
call names, like it seems like you're stupid, <laughs> technically a label, we wouldn't use that because that's name calling. We don't use labels to call names. We don't use labels for paraphrasing or for mirroring, not focusing on the content with labels. We're focusing on emotions, on driving forces, on dynamics, the indirectly reading between the lines sorts of things. You can label your way to agreement because labeling a positive reinforces a positive. Remember that target that we were talking about before. There's some slightly different dynamics here, but you could say to somebody, it sounds like you like, sounds like you like cooperation. Sounds like you like to be understood. Those are labeling positives. It sounds like you like agreement. It sounds like you like collaboration. Those are all positives. It sounds like you like to accomplish your goals. Those are labeling positives. You can make deals labeling positives. Don't get me wrong. Pitching benefits, focusing on the benefits. You can make those deals. If that's your focus, it's just going to take more work and you're going to leave money on the table. But that's the way that works. In the universe of the brain, labeling positives reinforces positives. Now, labeling negatives, conversely, counterintuitively, labeling negatives diminishes negatives. Labeling negatives dissolves negatives. Your gut instinct is that it's going to do the same thing as with the positive. Labeling a positive reinforces a positive, but the opposite is true. Labeling a negative diminishes a negative. Not denying. It's very important to draw a very clear distinction between saying, I don't want you to think I'm a loose cannon, to it seems like I'm a loose cannon. Both of those would be labeling, identification of negatives, that I'm a loose cannon. Number one is denying it, which boomerangs it and makes it worse, or just labeling it. I'm sure it seems like I'm a loose cannon. I used that specific phrase in an email once when I was working on my book and we were in the midst of a negotiation. Uh, the author that we were trying, the writer we were going to bring on at the time, which we ended up not using, this is not what Tal Raz, the co-author of the book, uh, the co-writer of the book, never split the difference. By the way, uncredited co-author of the book, I'm sorry, my son Brandon Voss. He was there the entire Entire time, absolutely an uncredited co-author. I'm diverging a little bit. A writer prior to Tall was trying to cut the deal, and I jump in in the communications between my agent and the writer. I'm being CC'd. Finally, I can't take it anymore. I shoot right in out of the blue with now checking with my agent in advance. What's somebody who does something and jumps in when he's supposed to be keeping quiet? What are they often called? Loose cannon. I put this in an email, and I'm, and I'm happy to say, I'm willing to say, the first time I wrote that email to my, my agent, phenomenal guy, Steve Ross, phenomenal guy, um, I wrote, I don't want you to think I'm a loose cannon. Thank God I didn't press send, because I looked at it again, I realized that was a denial, I changed the wording in the email, said I'm sure I seem like a loose cannon. Two millimeter shift from the denial to the label. I press the send button. As soon as Steve sees it, he shoots me back an email that says, I always respect the bold move. Look at the impact of the label. Look at the intended impact of the label. I sent that out in an email to demonstrate respect to Steve. 
to demonstrate a recognition that there's a really good chance that I was out, out of line and I was a loose cannon. And I'm fearlessly not hiding from it. That's a great thing about the labeling the negatives. You're showing yourself to be fearless. The other side is tremendously reassured by that. That builds rapport. That builds trust-based influence. Remember back to our deal-making stairway. What's the point here? The point is label negatives fearlessly. Again, we got two targets of equal size, not of equal value. Think of how quickly in that very short email I sent to, to my agent, Steve, you know, I don't do, we don't do long emails. We do concise emails. There was one label in that email, and I pressed send. Think of how far that got me when he came back with, I always respect the bold move. Is that closer to trust-based influence? Does that increase trust? Does that increase empathy between the two of us? Look at the dynamic of the way that that worked. All right, so let's do a little bit of practice here. And if we were together in the, in the one-day training, this is a practice that we would have done. Next time we get a chance to get together in the next one-day training we'll do, we're going to do some practice. So here's the situation. Husband and wife negotiation over Christmas tree. Husband wants an artificial tree. The wife wants a real one. Husband's got all his practical reasons for wanting the, uh, uh, the artificial tree. You know, you buy it once, you never have to buy it again. Um, that um, you put it away, you get it back out every year. When you, when you have it out, it doesn't catch on fire. We don't have to worry about electricity around it. You know, we don't have to worry about dry needles everywhere. If we got pets, we don't have to worry about the pets knocking it over, climbing into it, marketing it. Any, any of the, all of the practical reasons that a man... Or just a person who wants a, uh, an artificial tree might have. Again, you know, a lot of the, uh, the accusations of gender biases are more human nature biases, human nature problems. We just happen to have genders on e- either side of a question when, in fact, it's a human nature problem. Uh, it's a, that's a whole separate tangent. I don't want this particular negotiation to be about man, men versus women. The wife, on the other hand, in this, uh, is not hearing it. She wants a real tree. And she just not, she's not hearing his argument. Again, there's a tell there, argument. If you're arguing, you're losing. You need to be labeling. The husband in this case happened to be a student in my class, and he decides he's going to label to try to win the day, if you will. So I would ask you, if you're listening to this, ask yourself. I'm going to ask you to ask yourself. You need to label the wife in this instance. You need to label the counterpart in this instance who's not listening to you. What's a clue? A clue is if they're not paying really close attention to you, maybe it's something hidden or blind. It's probably not something that happened in the last couple of days. Maybe it's something that happened a long time ago. What is it about this scenario that the other side, you need to get a breakthrough? What can you label? What might you label to achieve the breakthrough in a negotiation like this? The counterpart wants a real tree. What is it about a real tree? What's the dynamic? What's hidden? What's, what's blind? Ask yourself, what would you label? What would you label? Here's what the husband labeled. Hmm, seems like he had real trees growing up. Yeah, there's a deep dive into the person on the other side. If they're being driven by something way in the past 
what might it be? Let me think a little bit. Let me search back in my mind. Maybe it had something to do with when she was little. Maybe she grew up around real trees. Maybe if I can get that out of her, maybe if I can diminish that, now we can make the deal. What I love about this particular negotiation, if you will, never be so sure of what you want that you wouldn't take something better. When he says this to her, she said, yes, I've got such great memories that the smell of a real tree brings back and the closeness of my family and my brothers and sisters around a real tree in the holidays and how close that made us all feel and how great those memories are. And I want those same memories for our children. Guess what kind of tree they got. Never be so sure of what you want that you wouldn't take something better. Your in-depth label might just trigger a realization on your behalf by the other person's reaction that they had a better idea and you liked their plan then better than you liked yours once you find out what they're after. Never be so sure of what you want that you wouldn't take something better. Be willing to be convinced. It's one of the beautiful things that I love about this particular negotiation because I found out about it from the husband who was absolutely and utterly convinced in a negotiation as soon as he dug into where the other side was coming from. Counterpart having to be his wife. All right, next one we're going to practice. Here's what you are. This time you're a fundraiser for the Girl Scouts. And you're sitting down with a donor. And you're hoping for 5000 or more donation. You're not, as a fundraiser for the Girl Scouts in this instance, you're not selling Girl Scout cookies. You're getting checks anywhere from five to fifteen to twenty-five to fifty thousand dollars a crack. Now you're a bit of a matchmaker. This is how you handle things. You do your research on your donor, you and then you, you you predict your donor's wants and needs on one hand, and on the other hand, then you've got a list of projects. So and you're being a matchmaker. You're trying to make your donor happy. So every project that you lay down in front of this donor, who's, who's a woman, you're in this instance, she has a fundraiser for the Girl Scouts, not that it matters. The person that wrote this, uh, uh, told me about this, told us about this negotiation was a woman and a counterpart to a woman. So every time you lay the project out in front of your counterpart, you just kind of get, you know, you get, you get body language that just, you know, it's kind of, kind of like this, it's, What would you label? What would you label that? Your job in these instances to demonstrate understanding, to build trust-based influence, to label a dynamic. That's what labels are designed to do. Label the dynamic. What do you see when someone just kind of, you know, they, they, just, they just give you that a little bit. Shrug of the shoulders, turn of the face. You know, maybe they crinkle the face up a little bit. What do you label Here's what was labeled. I'm sensing some hesitation with these projects. Now, I will point out, in this particular instance, this is slightly out of our structure. The word I is being used there. But with the delivery, it was meant with respect, with deference, with caution, great tonality. You start to roll these things in, and this does not become self-centering in terms of I'm more interested in what I'm sensing, which is my assessment of when someone says, well, what I'm hearing is, I'm trying to show you how smart they are. I'm sensing some hesitation with these projects. 
that was the label because the body language was hesitation. You might, call, you might have thought of a couple of other things. I don't know what you were thinking at the time when I asked you a few moments ago. But um, this, is, this is what uh, the body language was. So what happens with this label? With this label, the donor says, yes, you know, I don't want to fund recruitment projects because those are the type of projects that were being laid in front of the donor. And in the donor's perception of the projects, if she was funding recruitment, then some of the money that she was going to give was going to go to girls that were not going to end up being Girl Scouts. And she wanted every single dime to go to Girl Scouts only. She wanted 100% benefit for Girl Scouts only. And if it was a recruitment project, by definition, some of the girls that received the benefits would not make the decision to become Girl Scouts. They might have had a great time out. They might have got a great impression, but they wouldn't join. This is a hard thing for people. This would be the, this is this is intimate. This is special information. This is the kind of information you're not going to get by researching. It's a point of labels. One of a salesman whose whose close rate is is astronomical. Since he started using labels in these interactions, this gentleman told me, he said, you know what, people will tell you more about themselves than you could ever research. Since he started using labels, he's been doing less research on people because the pure fact is you'll get more information faster from the source than you will trying to go all over the planet, trying to piece it together, which, not you know, like Wikipedia, it's a good start, but a lot of the information out there is not completely accurate. People will tell you more about themselves than you could ever research. This particular example is a great example, a piece of information that our fundraiser never could have gotten with research. Who's going to admit that? Who's going to put that out there on a web someplace or even admit it in an interview? Closely guarded information, purpose of a label. The negotiation continues. She tries to make some adjustments. She, every single project that she throws out in front of this woman is still met with resistance. Now she's got to close. We're referring to this as the Oprah rule. The last impression is the lasting impression. The last impression, the first impression is of moderate importance. The first impression in an interaction is of moderate importance. It's not to say it's unimportant. But don't put more on it than, than is necessary. The last impression is the lasting impression. The single most important impression you will make with someone is the last impression. Just don't make a bad first impression and you're going to be okay. Your last impression has to be the best you could possibly make it. You're stuck with closing this out. You want to create a last impression that gives you the opportunity to call your donor back. What do you label? What do you say? The last impression is the last impression. What do you throw out here so that you set up, you have to set up the next interaction. Your last impression sets up your next interaction. What do you label? What was labeled in this case was, it seems like it's important to you to find the right match. And boom, in only trying to close properly, close positively, the donor looks at the fundraiser and says, you understand me, writes the check out and hands it to her. Our fundraiser told us that this is the only time she'd ever gotten a donation without coming up with a project match. Trust-based influence. 
The donor trusted her so much to do the right thing that she handed her the check with the presumption that it would go to the right place. This is what trust-based influence gets you. This is why your labels accumulate. Understand on this slide, I've got mid and late here. Your labels have an accumulation effect. You're accumulating trust. You're continually nurturing it. You're continually growing it so that you get the effect that you need. You make the deals. Next label. Landlord-tenant negotiation. You're a tenant. You want to sublet your apartment for the summer. You've got a dream opportunity. You're going to be away for the summer. You're working on your MBA. You've got this great internship. You're going to be out of town. Now, your landlord is famous for two things. No sublets, no renegotiation. What do you want to do? You want to renegotiate, so you can have a subletter. What do you do? How do you open? Where do you start? Remember our relative ratios, negatives and positives. What those relative ratios often mean is that you can't pitch positives until after you've eliminated negatives because the negatives are shouting in someone's ear three times the volume. What do you label? How do you start this up? What's the problem here that you need to diffuse? What would you say? You've got a number of choices here. In this particular instance, what you say is it seems like you aren't too big a fan of subletters. And with this in the real life negotiation, this is labeling a negative. The landlord unloads and the negativity diffuses on how much the landlord doesn't like subletters. Now, let's say, just for practice, you know, what's the flip side positive you could label there? You can label a negative direct. You've got a choice of a flip side positive. What's a flip side positive? They're not too big a fan of subletters. What does that mean? What's the implication? They don't like subletters. They do like what? What's in your head? What's in your mind? Brainstorm a little bit right now. They don't like subletters. Your label might be, it seems like you like. Okay. Off the top of my head, what I came up with was, it seems like you like stability. What do subletters represent? Instability, uncertainty. If you don't like instability, maybe you like stability. So you could make this choice in this instance to label the flip side positive if you wanted to. Got some sirens going by. This is being uh, recorded while I'm in the Los Angeles area, West Hollywood actually, occasionally a siren goes by. Anyway, write this one down. Write this down. This label has snatched victory from the jaws of defeat more times because what happened in this negotiation between this being chased by the police here. Maybe I, maybe I need to switch hats. All right, I'll switch hats. Here we go. Now, let's keep me out of trouble. All right, so what happened in this negotiation? You had experience in real estate, and you had a bunch of options for dealing with subletters after you diffused the negativity early on, and every single option you laid out, your landlord shot down. And your landlord shut each and everything down until finally you're out of gas, you're out of options. Now, again, you're getting ready to close here. The last impression is the lasting impression. The student that wrote this paper 
was only trying to close with respect and appreciation, not trying to salvage the deal. As it turns out, because of the amount of empathy that was demonstrated throughout the course of the conversation, the trust-based influence, the reciprocated empathy that went back and forth, the accumulation of labels, and simply trying to label the dynamic. Because up to this point in time, nothing the tenant said changed the landlord's mind. So it's just a simple label of a dynamic. It sounds like there's nothing I can say to get you to change your mind. Said with respect and deference and appreciation, bordering on the late night FM DJ voice. And with that, the landlord looked at him and said, there is, and this is exactly what I want. We can cut this deal if you could do these things. The landlord laid it out. The person that was negotiating this case knew they could do it all. They went out, they handled all the issues, and the person got the sublet for the summer and the renegotiation with an accumulation of labels. And this one at the very end, if you've been deferential and respectful and you've been listening throughout the negotiation, it sounds like there's nothing I can say to get you to change your mind is a phenomenal label to close out on. There's no downside there because they might say to you, yeah, and they will have felt respected. Early labels set up late labels. Use a late label close to set up the next interaction because the last impression is the lasting impression. Next scenario. Hey, I like different I like different special effects. I hope you appreciated that. You're dealing with an analyst or an analytical type or an analytical situation. You're talking to someone, the analyst come off as often very cold, very distant. You want to label their affect right off the bat. In this case, I happen to be labeling a colleague that I just met who was going to become a colleague I was going to do business with, very analytical guy. And it's coming off in cold and distant. I want to label the affect. You're meeting someone for the first time. <laughs> Your cold read. Your label. What do you label to label an affect of a distant and analytical type? What might you say? Here's what I said. You seem guarded. Not as an accusation. You seem guarded. Again, delivery is critical. You seem guarded, just as an observation. The individual that I was talking to at the time just kind of went, well, yeah, which is a guarded response, right? And I said, look, I didn't say it was good or bad or anything wrong with it. As a matter of fact, I think in the line of business that you're in, it's probably really good. And we continued to talk. About a minute and a half later, this person began to unload all sorts of closely held personal information over things that had happened to this person over the previous year and a half. I promise you with this label, inside of five minutes, I was hearing stuff from this person that they hadn't told the people that had been working around them for several years. It's amazing how quickly you can get into somebody with a non-judgmental, well-delivered label. Now, what might be the flip side of this? Besides you seem guarded, if you wanted to flip it around, if you wanted to come in from another approach, what's the flip of guarded? If someone's guarded, what do they like? What do they dislike? You like, you seem, it looks like you like, it looks like you don't like. 
what might, how might you flip the guard around if you didn't want to say this? Off the top of my head, you like being careful. Someone is guarded, they like to be careful. Looks like you like, you like, it seems like you like. If you take those words and they just drop in a word at the end to try to, f- to label the flip side, you'll be able to finish the sentence. You seem guarded, sounds like you like being careful. You like being careful. A little bit of practice, you'll get very good at this. Boss drive-by. Here's the situation. Your work. The boss comes by and grabs you and says, Come on, quick, right now. Come down to my office. Come down to my office right now. We got to deal with something. I'll tell you, the student that wrote this paper referred to this as a boss drive-by. Boss walks up to you and grabs you and starts dragging you down the hall to his or her office and says, Come on, we got to go right now. We got to deal with this right away. What do you label? Label the dynamic. What do you label? Because, why do you label now instead of just go silently? If your boss is dragging you down the hall to deal with something that's got your boss so wound up that they're grabbing you and dragging you down the hall, they're dragging you because they need you for implementation. And if this is catching you off guard, it means probably the boss has thought up an answer and hasn't consulted with you. And if you're involved in implementation with no consultation, there's a pretty good chance there's going to be some problems here. So you need to calm this person down. And of course, the last thing you ever say to anybody is calm down. You need a label to begin to diffuse the negativity. What do you label? What do you say? And seem respectful and deferential at the same time. What happened in this instance? This sounds important. Because if somebody's dragging you and grabbing you and saying, come on, let's go, let's go, let's go. The first message they're trying to get across to you is that it is important. And when you label this sounds important, you provide relief to them because you've recognized the first port point and most important point that it is important and it begins to put them back down to their normal balanced functioning level of interaction where they could listen. So I would ask you, what's the flip side of this? How could we flip side label this? Off the top of my head, I was thinking, seems like you hate inattention. I don't know if the boss is grabbing me and dragging me down the hall. The boss wants my attention. I'm going to label a negative. Seems like you hate inattention. I'll bet you can come up with a lot better flip side negatives or a lot better flip side labels than that. That happened to be the one that I came up with in this instance. Next situation. Next situation, you're looking to buy, you're, you're working for a real estate uh, development, uh, um, a real estate developer, and you're looking to buy commercial office building. It's a mixed-use commercial office building in a historic district in a town. They've got full occupancy. There's a strong economy. In short, it's a cash cow, and you look at this and you think to yourself, why, oh, why, oh, why? Why would someone sell a cash cow? There's more to this. This looks too good to be true. But you got to label this. Because you can't say to somebody, this looks too good to be true. You know, what's your label? What do you you label? What's going on here? What's going on? Because you're dealing through a broker and what you're trying to get at is closely guarded information. 
So what's going on here? How, how, how do we make this work? What's your label? All right. This was the label, which effectively ends up being a mislabel. It seems like the seller is trying to get out of the market due to disbelief in future market fundamentals if he or she is selling a cash cow. This is kind of a summary, paraphrasing combination label, which effectively ends up being a mislabel. If it's a mislabel, the other side's going to correct you. People love to correct. They'll lose a little bit of control of their ego when they're correcting. What happens then? More likely to drop closely held guarded information. With this mislabel, the broker says no, essentially, no, as a matter of fact, the owner's underwater on several other buildings. Boom. How often do you get that kind of information? Why is the owner selling? Would be the question of what's making the owner sell. A better calibrated question, but the question puts people on their guard sometimes. Are you going to get that kind of closely held information with a question? Probably not. A good mislabel, which is why your label doesn't have to be accurate because the other side's going to correct you. And when they correct you, the chances are that they're giving you uh, truthful and unguarded information is much higher. This is the information that we're looking for as a result of labels. Look at it this way. Do you have to label all the time? No, you can. You could, you could probably label your way through an entire negotiation. But if about every fourth, fourth uh, verbalization isn't a label, you're, you're probably not labeling enough. And please, please, please remember, labels are followed by silence. Don't step on your label. Count to thousands if you have to. Please, please, please don't cross your labels with a follow-up question or another label or some other response because you're stepping on your label and you're destroying its effectiveness. Summation of what we're talking about here. Negatives have three times the impact of positives. Every positive has a flip side negative. Every negative has a flip side positive. Practice these. This practice and the demonstration of comprehension with the labels is the gateway to unconscious excellence. And it's not that far. 63 to 65 tries maximum on your labels and mislabels. That's not that many tries. That's not that many days. You'd be shocked at how quickly this stuff comes to you. And you'll have fun with it. It's amazing fun to be able to cut deals that other people can't cut. Distinguish yourself and have a wonderful time with labels. Continue to stay with us with the Black Swan Group. Use this information. Read our newsletter. Keep up with us. The newsletter, again, The Edge, it's on the website, blackswanltd.com. If you're not already subscribed to The Edge, send a one-word text, FBI Empathy, all one word. Don't put a space in there. Don't let your autocorrect put a space in between FBI and Empathy. FBI Empathy, all one word, to 22828. That's 22828. Keep up with us. Let us continue to help you. 
Good luck and stay with us. Talk with you soon.